Chapter Four of *The Return of the Soldier*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. *The Return of the Soldier* by Rebecca West. Chapter Four. Next morning it appeared that the chauffeur had taken the car up to town to get a part replaced, and Margaret could not be brought from Wealdstone till the afternoon. It fell to me to fetch her. At least, Kitty had said, I might be spared that humiliation. Before I started I went to the pond on the hill's edge. It is a place where autumn lives for half the year, for even when the spring lights tongues of green fire in the undergrowth, and the valley shows sun-lit between the tree-trunks, here the pond is fringed with yellow bracken and tinted bramble, and the water flows amber over last winter's leaves. Through this brown gloom, darkened now by a surly sky, Chris was taking the skiff, standing in the stern and using his oar like a gondolier. He had come down here soon after breakfast, driven from the house by the strangeness of all but the outer walls, and discontented with the grounds because everything but this wet, intractable spot bore the marks of Kitty's genius. After lunch there had been another attempt to settle down, but with a grim glare at a knot of late Christmas roses bright in a copse that fifteen years ago had been dark, he went back to the russet-caved boat-house, and this play with the skiff. It was a boy's sport, and it was dreadful to see him turn a middle-aged face as he brought the boat in shore. "'I am just going down to fetch Margaret,' I said. He thanked me for it. "'But, Chris, I must tell you. I've seen Margaret. She came up here, so kind and sweet, to tell us you were wounded. She's the greatest dear in the world, but she's not as you think of her. She's old, Chris. She isn't beautiful any longer. She's drearily married. She's seamed and scored and ravaged by squalid circumstances. You can't love her when you see her." "'Didn't I tell you last night,' he said, "'that that doesn't matter?' He dipped his oar to a stroke that sent him away from me. "'Bring her soon. I shall wait for her down here.' Wealdstone is not, in its way, a bad place. It lies in the lap of open country and at the end of every street rise the green hills of Harrow and the spires of Harrow School. But all the streets are long and red, and freely articulated with railway arches, and factories spoil the skyline with red angular chimneys, and in front of the shops stood little women with backs ridged by cheap stays, who tapped their upper lips with their forefingers, and made other feeble, doubtful gestures, as though they wanted to buy something and knew that if they did they would have to starve some other appetite. When we asked them the way, they turned to us faces sour with thrift. It was a town of people who could not do as they liked. And here Margaret lived in a long road of red-brick boxes, flecked here and there with the pink blur of almond blossom, which debouched in a flat field where green grass rose up rank through clay mould, blackened by coal-dust from the railway. Mariposa, which was the last house in the road, did not even have an almond-tree. In the front garden, which seemed to be imperfectly reclaimed from the greasy field, yellow crocus and some sodden squills just winked, and the back, where a man was handling a spade without mastery, presented the austere appearance of an allotment. And not only did Margaret live in this place, she also belonged to it. 
When she opened the door, she gazed at me with watering eyes, and in perplexity stroked her disordered hair with a flowery hand. Her face was sallow with heat, and beads of perspiration glittered in the deep, dragging line between her nostrils and the corners of her mouth. She said, "'He's home?' I nodded. She pulled me inside and slammed the door. "'Is he well?' she asked. "'Quite,' I answered. Her tense stare relaxed. She rubbed her hands on her overall, and said, "'You'll excuse me. It's the girl's day out. If you'll step into the parlour—' So in her parlour I sat, and told her how it was with Chris, and how greatly he desired to see her. And as I spoke of his longing, I turned my eyes away from her, because she was sitting on a sofa, upholstered in velveteen of a sickish green, which was so low that her knees stuck up in front of her, and she had to clasp them with her seamed flowery hands. I could see that the skin of her face was damp, and my voice failed me as I looked round the room, because I saw just what Margaret had seen that evening fifteen years ago, when she had laid her cheek to the parlour window at Monkey Island. There was the enlarged photograph of Margaret's mother over the mantelpiece. On the walls were the views of Tintern Abbey, framed in red plush. Between the rickety legs of the china cupboard was the sewing-machine, and tucked into the corner between my chair and the fender were a pair of carpet-slippers. All her life long, Margaret, who in her time had partaken of the supreme dignity of a requited love, had lived with men who wore carpet-slippers in the house. I turned my eyes away again, and this time looked down the garden at the figure that was not so much digging as exhibiting his incapacity to deal with a spade. He was sneezing very frequently, and his sneezes made the unbuckled straps at the back of his waistcoat wag violently. I supposed him to be Mr. William Gray. I had finished the statement of our sad case, and I saw that though she had not moved, clasping her knees in a set, hideous attitude, the tears were rolling down her cheeks. "'Oh, don't! Oh, don't!' I exclaimed, standing up. Her tear-stained immobility touched the heart. "'He's not so bad. He'll get quite well.' "'I know. I know,' she said miserably. "'I don't believe that anything bad could be allowed to happen to Chris for long. And I'm sure,' she said kindly, "'you're looking after him beautifully. But when a thing you had thought ended fifteen years ago starts all over again, and you're very tired—' She drew a hand across her tears, her damp skin, her rough, bagging overall. "'I'm hot. I've been baking. You can't get a girl nowadays that understands the baking.' Her gaze became remote and tender, and she said in a manner that was at once argumentative and narrative, as though she were telling the whole story to a neighbour over the garden wall, "'I suppose I ought to say that he isn't right in his head. And I'm married, and we'd better not meet. But oh!' she cried. And I felt as though, after much fumbling with damp matches, and many doubts as to whether there was any oil in the wick, I had lit the lamp at last. "'I want to see him so. It's wrong, I know it's wrong, but I'm so glad Chris wants to see me, too!' "'You'll do him good?' I found myself raising my voice to the pitch she had suddenly attained as though to keep her at it. "'Come now!' She dipped suddenly to compassion. "'But the young lady—' she asked, timidly. She was upset the last time. I've often wondered if I did right in going. Even if Chris has forgotten, he'll want to do what's right. He couldn't bear to hurt her." "'That's true,' I said. You do know our Chris. He watches her out of the corner of his eye, even when he's feeling at his worst, to see she isn't wincing. 
But she sent me here to-day." "'Oh!' cried Margaret, glowing. "'She must have a lovely nature.' I lost suddenly the thread of the conversation. I could not talk about Kitty. She appeared to me at that moment a faceless figure with flounces, just as most of the servants at Baldry Court appear to me as faceless figures with caps and aprons. There were only two real people in the world—Chris and this woman, whose personality was sounding through her squalor like a beautiful voice, singing in a darkened room, and I was absorbed in a mental vision of them. You know how the saints and the prophets are depicted in the steel engravings in old Bibles. So they were standing, in flowing white robes on rocks against a pitch-black sky, a strong light beating on their eyes upturned in ecstasy, and their hand outstretched to receive the spiritual blessing of which the fierce rays were an emanation. Into that rapt silence I decided to break, and I whispered reverently, "'Oh, nothing! Nothing is too good for Chris!' while I said to myself, "'If she really were like that, solemn and beatified!' And my eyes returned to look despairingly on her ugliness. But she really was like that. She had responded to my irrelevant murmur of adoration by just such a solemn and beatified appearance as I had imagined. Her grave eyes were upturned, her worn hands lay palm upward on her knees, as though to receive the love of which her radiance was an emanation. And then, at a sound in the kitchen, she snatched my exultation from me by suddenly turning dull. I think that's Mr. Gray come in from his gardening. You'll excuse me." Through the open door I heard a voice, saying in a way which suggested that its production involved much agitation of a prominent Adam's apple. "'Well, dear, seeing you had a friend, I thought I'd better slip up and change my gardening trousers.' I do not know what she said to him, but her voice was soft and comforting, and occasionally girlish and interrupted by laughter, and I perceived from its sound that with characteristic gravity she had accepted it as her mission to keep loveliness and excitement alive in his life. An old friend of mine has been wounded," was the only phrase I heard, but when she drew him out to the garden under the window, she had evidently explained the situation away, for he listened docilely as she said, "'I've made some rock-cakes for your tea, and if I'm late for supper there's a dish of macaroni cheese you must put in the oven, and a tin of tomatoes to eat with it, and there is little rhubarb and shape.' She told them off on her fingers, and then whisked him round and buckled the wagging straps at the back of his waistcoat. He was a lank man with curly grey hairs growing from every place where it is inadvisable that hairs should grow, from the insides of his ears, from his nostrils, on the backs of his hands. But he looked pleased when she touched him, and he said in a devoted way, "'Very well, dear. Don't worry about me. I'll trot along after tea and have a game of draughts with Brown.' She answered, "'Yes, dear. And now get on with those cabbages. You're going to keep me in lovely cabbages, just as you did last year, won't you, darling?' She linked arms with him and took him back to his digging. When she came back into the parlour again, she was wearing that yellowish raincoat, the hat with hearse plumes nodding over its sticky straw, that grey alpaca skirt. I first defensively clenched my hands. It would have been such agony to the fingertips to touch any part of her apparel. And then I thought of Chris, to whom a second before I had hoped to bring a serene comforter. I perceived clearly that that ecstatic woman lifting her eyes and her hands to the benediction of love was Margaret as she existed in eternity. But this was Margaret as she existed in time, as the fifteen years between Monkey Island and this damp day in Ladysmith Road had irreparably made her. Well, I had promised to bring her to him. She said, "'I'm ready,' 
and against that simple view of her condition I had no argument. But when she paused by the painted drain-pipe in the hall, and peered under contracted brows for that unveracious tortoise-shell handle, I said hastily, "'Oh, don't trouble about an umbrella.' "'I'll maybe need it walking home,' she pondered. "'But the car will bring you back.' "'Oh, that'll be lovely,' she said, and laughed nervously, looking very plain. "'Do you know, I think the way we're coming together is terrible, but I can't think of a meeting with Chris as anything but a kind of treat. I've got a sort of party feeling now." As she held the gate open for me, she looked back at the house. "'It's a horrid little house, isn't it?' she asked. She evidently desired sanction for a long suppressed discontent. "'It isn't very nice,' I agreed. "'They put cows sometimes into the field at the back,' she went on, as if conscientiously counting her blessings. "'I like that, but otherwise it isn't much.' "'But it's got a very pretty name.' I said, laying my hand on the raised metal letters that spelled Mariposa across the gate. "'Ah! Oh, isn't it?' she exclaimed, with the smile of the inveterate romanticist. "'It's Spanish, you know, for butterfly.' Once we were in the automobile, she became a little sullen with shyness, because she felt herself so big and clumsy, her clothes so coarse, against the fine upholstery, the silver vase of Christmas roses, and all the deliberate delicacy of Kitty's car. She was afraid of the chauffeur, as the poor are always afraid of men-servants, and ducked her head when he got out to start the car. To recall her to ease and beauty, I told her that though Chris had told me all about their meeting, he knew nothing of their parting, and that I wished very much to hear what had happened. In a deep, embarrassed voice she began to tell me about Monkey Island. It was strange how both Chris and she spoke of it as though it were not a place, but a magic state which largely explained the actions performed in it. Strange, too, that both of them should describe meticulously the one white hawthorn that stood among the poplars by the ferry-side. I suppose a thing that one has looked at with some one one loves acquires forever a special significance. She said that her father had gone there when she was fourteen. After Mrs. Arlington had been taken away by a swift and painful death, the cheer of his Windsor hostelry had been intolerable to the man. He regarded the whole world as a grave, and the gypsy sergeants in scarlet, the carter crying for a pint of four-half, and even the mares dipping their mild noses to the trough in the courtyard, seemed to be defiling it by their happy, simple appetites. So they went to Monkey Island, the utter difference of which was a healing, and settled down happily in its green silence. All the summer was lovely—quiet, kind people, schoolmasters who fished, men who wrote books, married couples who still loved solitude, used to come and stay in the bright little inn. And all the winter was lovely, too. Her temperament could see an adventure in taking up the carpets, because the Thames was coming into the coffee-room. That was the tale of her life for four years. With her head on one side, and the air of judging this question by the light of experience, she pronounced that she had been then happy. Then one April afternoon Chris landed at the island, and by the first clean, quick movement of tying up his boat made her his slave. I could imagine that it would be so. He was wonderful when he was young. He possessed in great measure the loveliness of young men, which is like the loveliness of the spry foal or the sapling, but in him it was vexed into a serious and moving beauty by the inhabiting soul. When the sunlight lay on him, disclosing the gold hairs on his brown head, or when he was subject to any other physical pleasure, there was always reserve in his response to it. From his eyes, which, though grey, were somehow dark with speculation, 
one perceived that he was distracted by participation in some spiritual drama. To see him was to desire intimacy with him, so that one might intervene between this body, which was formed for happiness, and this soul, which cherished so deep a faith in tragedy. Well, she gave Chris duck's eggs for tea. No one ever had duck's eggs like father did. It was his way of feeding them. It didn't pay, of course, but they were good. Before the afternoon was out, he had snared them all with the silken net of his fine manners. He had talked to father about his poultry, and walked about the runs and shown an intelligent interest, and then, as on many succeeding days, he had laid his charm at the girl's feet. But I thought he must be some one royal, and when he kept on coming I know it must be for the duck's eggs. Then her damp, dull skin flushed suddenly to a warm glory, and she began to stammer. "'I know all about that,' I said quickly. I was more afraid that I should feel envy, or any base passion in the presence of this woman, than I have ever been of anything else in my life. I want to hear how you came to part." "'Oh!' she cried. It was the silliest quarrel. We had known how he felt for just a week. Such a week! Lovely weather we had, and father hadn't noticed anything. I didn't want him to, cause I thought father might want the marriage soon and think any delay a slight on me, and I knew he would have to wait. Nay, I can remember saying to myself, perhaps five years, trying to make it as bad as could be so that if we could marry sooner it would be a lovely surprise. She repeated with soft irony, "'Perhaps five years.' Well, then, one Thursday afternoon I had gone on the backwater with Bert Batchard, nephew to Mr. Batchard who keeps the inn at Surly Hall. I was laughing out loud because he did row so funny. He's a town chap, and he was handling those oars for all the world as though they were teaspoons. The old dinghy just sat on the water like a hen on its chicks and didn't move, and he so sure of himself. I just sat and laughed and laughed. Then all of a sudden, clang, clang, the bell at the ferry. And there was Chris, standing up there among the poplars, his brow straight and black and not a smile on him. I felt very bad. We picked him up in the dinghy and took him across, and still he didn't smile. He and I got on the island, and Bert, who saw there was something wrong, said, "'Well, I'll toddle off.' And there I was on the lawn with Chris, and he angry and somehow miles away. I remember him saying, "'Here I am, coming to say good-bye, because I must go away to-night, and I find you larking with that bounder.' And I said, "'Oh, Chris, I've known Bert all my life through him coming to his uncle for the holidays, and we weren't larking. It was only that he couldn't row.' And he went on talking, and then it struck me he wasn't trusting me as he would trust a girl of his own class, and I told him so, and he went on being cruel. Don't make me remember the things we said to each other. It doesn't help. At last I said something awful, and he said, Very well, I agree, I'll go. And he walked over to the boy who was chopping wood, and got him to take him over in the punt. As he passed me, he turned away his face. Well, that's all. I had got the key at last. There had been a spring at Baldry Court fifteen years ago that was desolate for all that there was beautiful weather. Chris had lingered with Uncle Ambrose in his Thameside rectory as he had never lingered before, and old Mr. Baldry was filling the house with a sense of hot, apoplectic misery. All day he was up in town at the office, and without explanation he had discontinued his noontide habit of ringing up his wife. All night he used to sit in the library looking over his papers and ledgers. Often in the mornings the housemaids would find him asleep across his desk, very red, yet looking dead. The men he brought home to dinner treated him with a kindness and consideration, which were not the tributes that that victorious and trumpeting personality was accustomed to exact, 
and in the course of conversation with them he dropped braggart hints of impending ruin, which he would have found it humiliating to address to us directly. At last there came a morning when he said to Mrs. Baldry across the breakfast-table, "'I've sent for Chris. If the boy's worth his salt—' It was an appalling admission, like the groan of an old ship as a timbers shiver, from a man who doubted the capacity of his son, as fathers always doubt the capacity of the children born of their old age. It was that evening, as I went down to see the new baby at the lodge, that I met Chris coming up the drive. Through the blue twilight his white face had had a drowned look. I remembered it well, because my surprise that he passed me without seeing me, had made me perceive for the first time that he had never seen me at all, save in the most cursory fashion. On the eye of his mind, I realised, thenceforward, I had hardly impinged. That night he talked till late with his father, and in the morning he had started for Mexico to keep the mines going, to keep the firm's head above water, and Baldry Court sleek and hospitable, to keep everything bright and splendid save only his youth, which ever after that was dulled by care. Something of this I told Margaret, to which she answered, "'Oh, I know all that,' and went on with her story. On Sunday, three days after their quarrel, Mr. Allington was found dead in his bed. I wanted Chris so badly, but he never came, he never wrote. And she fell into a lethargic disposition to sit all day and watch the Thames flow by, from which she was hardly roused by finding that her father had left her nothing, save an income of twenty pounds a year from unrealizable stock. She negotiated the transfer of the lease of the inn to a publican, and after exacting a promise from the new hostess that she would forward all letters that might come, embarked upon an increasingly unfortunate career as a mother's help. First she fell into the hands of a noble Irish family in reduced circumstances, whose conduct in running away and leaving her in a Brighton hotel with her wages and her bill unpaid, still distressed and perplexed her. "'Why did they do it?' she asked. "'I liked them so. The baby was a darling, and Mrs. Murphy had such a nice way of speaking. But it almost makes one think evil of people when they do a thing like that.' After two years of less sensational but still uneasy adventures, she had come upon a large and needy family called Watson who lived at Chiswick, and almost immediately Mr. William Gray, who was Mrs. Watson's brother, had begun a courtship that I suspected of consisting of an incessant whining up at her protective instinct. "'Mr. Gray,' she said softly, as though stating his chief aim to affection, "'has never been very successful.' And still no letter ever came. So five years after she left Monkey Island, she married Mr. William Gray. Soon after their marriage he lost his job, and was for some time out of work. Later he developed a weak chest that needed constant attention. "'But it all helped to pass the time,' she said cheerfully, and without irony. So it happened that it was not till two years after that that she had the chance of revisiting Monkey Island. At first there was no money and later there was the necessity of seeking the healthful breezes of Brighton, or Bognor, or South End, which were the places in which Mr. Gray's chest oddly elected to thrive. And when these obstacles were removed, she was lethargic. Also she had heard that the inn was not being managed as it ought to be, and she could not have borne to see the green home of her youth defiled. But then there had come a time when she had been very much upset. She glared a little wildly at me as she said this, as if she would faint if I asked her any questions and then she suddenly became obsessed with a desire to see Monkey Island once more. "'Well, when we got to the ferry, Mr. Gray says, "'But mercy, Margaret, there's water all round it!' And I said, "'William, that's just it!' They found the island was clean and decorous again, 
for it had only recently changed hands. Father and daughter the new people are, just like me and Dad, and Mr. Taylor's something of Dad's cut too, but he comes from the north. But Miss Taylor's much handsomer than I ever was, a really big woman she is, and such lovely golden hair. They were very kind when I told them who I was, gave us duck and green peas for lunch, and I did think of Dad. They were nothing like as good as his ducks, but then I expect they paid. And then Miss Taylor took William out to look at the garden. I know he didn't like it, for he's always shy with a showy woman, and I was going after them when Mr. Taylor said, "'Ere, stop a minute. I've got something here that may interest you. Just come in here.' He took me up to the roller-desk in the office, and out of the drawer he took twelve letters addressed to me in Chris's handwriting. He was a kind man. He put me into a chair and called Miss Taylor in, and told her to keep William out in the garden as long as possible. At last I said, "'But Mrs. Hitchcock did say she'd send my letters on,' and he said, Mrs. Hitchcock hadn't been here three weeks before she bolted with a bookie from Bray, and after that Hitchcock mixed his drinks and got careless. He said they had found these stuffed into the desk. And what was in them? For a long time I didn't read them. I thought it was against my duty as a wife. But when I got that telegram saying he was wounded, I went upstairs and read those letters. Oh, those letters! She bowed her head and wept. As the car swung through the gates of Baldry Court, she sat up and dried her eyes. She looked out at the strip of turf, so bright that one would think it wet, and lighted here and there with snowdrops and scillas and crocuses, that runs between the drive and the tangle of silver birch and bramble and fern. There is no aesthetic reason for that border. The common outside looks lovelier where it fringes the road with dark gorse and rough amber grasses. Its use is purely philosophic. It proclaims that here we esteem only controlled beauty, that the wild will not have its way within our gates, that it must be made delicate and decorated into felicity. Surely she must see that this was no place for beauty that had been not mellowed, but lacerated by time, that no one accustomed to live here could help wincing at such external dinginess as hers. But instead she said, "'It's a big place. Chris must have worked hard to keep all this up.' pity of this woman was like a flaming sword. No one had ever before pitied Chris for the magnificence of Baldry Court. It had been our pretence that by wearing costly clothes and organising a costly life we had been the servants of his desire. But she revealed the truth, that although he did indeed desire a magnificent house, it was a house not built with hands. But that she was wise, that the angels would of a certainty be on her side, did not make her any the less physically offensive to our atmosphere. All my doubts as to the wisdom of my expedition revived in the little time we had to spend in the hall waiting for the tea which I had ordered, in the hope that it might help Margaret to compose her distressed face. She hovered with her back to the oak table, fumbling with her thread gloves, winking her tear-red eyes, tapping with her foot on the carpet, throwing her weight from one leg to the other and I constantly contrasted her appearance by some clumsiness with the new acquisition of Kitty's decorative genius that stood so close behind her on the table, that I was afraid it might be upset by one of her spasmodic movements. This was a shallow black bowl in the centre of which crouched on all fours a white naked nymph, her small head intently drooped to the white flowers that floated on the black waters all round her. Beside the pure black of the bowl her rusty plumes looked horrible beside that white nymph, eternally innocent of all but the contemplation of beauty, her opaque skin and her suffering were offensive. 
beside its air of being the coolly conceived and leisurely executed production of a hand and brain, lifted by their rare quality to the service of the not absolutely necessary, her appearance of having only for the moment ceased to cope with a vexed and needy environment, struck me as a cancerous blot on the fair world. Perhaps it was absurd to pay attention to this indictment of a noble woman by a potter's toy, but that toy happened to be also a little image of Chris's conception of women. Exquisite we were according to our equipment, unflushed by appetite or passion, even noble passion, our small heads bent intently on the white flowers of luxury, floating on the black waters of life, he had known none other than us. With such a mental habit a man could not help but wince at Margaret. I drank my tea very slowly, because I provisioned what must happen in the next five minutes. Down there by the pond he would turn at the sound of those heavy boots on the path, and with one glance he would assess the age of her, the rubbed surface of her, the torn fine texture, and he would show to her squalid mask just such a blank face as he had shown to Kitty's piteous mask the night before. Although I had a gift for self-pity, I knew her case would then be worse than mine, for it would be worse to see, as she would see, the ardour in his eyes give place to kindliness than never to have ardour there. He would hesitate, she would make one of her harassed gestures, and trail away with that wet, patient look which was her special line. He would go back to his boyish sport with the skiff. I hoped the brown waters would not seem too kind. She would go back to Mariposa, sit on her bed, and read those letters. "'And now,' she said brightly, as I put down my cup, "'may I see Chris?' She had not a doubt of the enterprise. I took her into the drawing-room and opened one of the French windows. "'Go past the cedars to the pond,' I told her. "'He is rowing there.' "'That is nice,' she said. "'He always looked so lovely in a boat.' I called after her, trying to hint the possibility of a panic breakdown to their meeting. "'You'll find he's altered,' she cried gleefully. "'Oh, I shall know him!' As I went upstairs I became aware that I was near to bodily collapse. I suppose the truth is that I was physically so jealous of Margaret that it was making me ill. But suddenly— like a tired person dropping a weight that they know to be precious, but cannot carry for another minute, my mind refused to consider the situation any longer, and turned to the perception of material things. I leaned over the balustrade and looked down at the fineness of the hall, the deliberate figure of the nymph in her circle of black waters, the clear pink and white of Kitty's chintz, the limpid surface of the oak, the broken burning of all the gay reflected colours in the panelled walls. I said to myself, if everything else goes, there is always this to fall back on. And I went on, pleased that I was wearing delicate stuffs and that I had a smooth skin, pleased that the walls of the corridor were so soft a twilight blue, pleased that through a far-off open door there came a stream of light that made the carpet blaze its stronger blue. And when I saw that it was the nursery door that was open, and that Kitty was sitting in Nanny's big chair by the window, I did not care about the peaked face she lifted its fairness palely gilt by the March sunlight, or the tremendous implications of the fact that she had come to her dead child's nursery, although she had not washed her hair. I said sternly, because she had forgotten that we lived in the impregnable fort of a gracious life, "'Oh, Kitty! That poor battered thing outside!' She stared so grimly out into the garden that my eyes followed her stare. It was one of those draggled days, 
common at the end of March when a garden looks its worst. The wind that was rolling up to check a show of sunshine had taken away the cedar's dignity of solid blue shade, had set the black firs beating their arms together, and had filled the sky with glaring grey cloud that dimmed the brilliance of the crocuses. It was to give gardens a point on such days as these, when the planned climax of this flower-bed and that stately tree goes for nothing, that the old gardeners raised statues in their lawns and walks, large things with a subject, mossy tritons or nymphs with an urn, that held the eye. Even so, in this unrestful garden, one's eyes lay on the figure in the yellow raincoat that was standing still in the middle of the lawn. How her near presence had been known by Chris I do not understand, but there he was, running across the lawn as night after night I had seen him in my dreams running across no man's land. I knew that so he would close his eyes as he ran. I knew that so he would pitch on his knees when he reached safety. I assumed naturally that at Margaret's feet lay safety, even before I saw her arms brace him under the armpits with a gesture that was not passionate, but rather the movement of one carrying a wounded man from under fire. But even when she had raised his head to the level of her lips, the central issue was not decided. I covered my eyes and said aloud, In a minute he will see her face, her hands. But although it was a long time before I looked again, they were still clinging breast to breast. It was as though her embrace fed him. He looked so strong as he broke away. They stood with clasped hands, looking at one another. They looked straight, they looked delightedly. And then, as if resuming a conversation tiresomely interrupted by some social obligation, they drew together again, and passed under the tossing branches of the cedar to the wood beyond. I reflected, while Kitty shrilly wept, how entirely right Chris had been, in his assertion, that to lovers innumerable things do not matter. End of chapter 4